Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When Romans chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. We'll look at that passage in a moment. But, but first, I just wanted to reflect for a, a bit on what I think is one of the most frustrating realities that I've discovered since uh, my own ordination, since uh, becoming a, a pastor. And it's this. I can't tell you how many times in talking to people who are, are working with me towards making a profession of faith, joining the church, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story they say something like this, you know, I've been to church before, maybe a lot of times, often, in some cases even grew up in church, but I never heard the gospel. I grew up in church, I've attended church, but I thought that what the, the path was, that what God wanted for me was just to be a good person, to not do too many horrible things, to definitely show up in church and, uh, and, and appear good and, and make good financial contributions to the church, and then everything would be good, and God would be pleased with me, and I thought that's what it was all about. That used to always uh, frustrate me, but also give me a sense of validation, because I, I was proud that finally you came to this church, and actually did hear the gospel, and, and heard it proclaimed, and so I derived a certain amount of pleasure, I suppose, from, from seeing that we were doing what, what others were failing to do. And then I had this experience over the summer at Worldview Academy. Uh, I was talking during the course of the week. Uh, as I was giving lectures, in between lectures, you talk to the students who were there. I was talking to this one young person. He was about 15 years old, but, but small, looked a lot younger th than he was. And he came to me and said, I really just don't think I can be a Christian because I'm not a good person. And because I don't think I could give up uh, rock music, and I'm not really good at cleaning up my room, <laughs> I began to doubt my own salvation. <laughs> not really, but, but I was astonished that this is what he thought it was, that he couldn't be a Christian because he wasn't a good person, because he wasn't willing to change his taste in music, and because he didn't do a very good job tidying up his room. And he thought that's what mattered. Now, immediately when I heard this, I started thinking, man, what kind of church must this kid go to? It must be like First Church of Moralism. There's preaching, be a good person. It's some sort of self-help sermon every week. He's never heard the real gospel. At the closing ceremony, uh, a guy came up to me and introduced himself. He, he found out that I was a Presbyterian pastor, and, and he said, that, hey, I'm also a Presbyterian pastor in the same denomination, and... Uh, and it turns out he was this kid's pastor. And I said to him, I've been talking to this boy all week long, and, and the way he describes the gospel, it, he doesn't get it. And his pastor said, I know. And we've had this conversation again and again and again. And that was humbling. That was humbling because it, it demonstrates that no matter where you are, no matter who you've encountered, no matter what kind of church you've been in, it's not always 
that the gospel wasn't being proclaimed. Sometimes it's that we just didn't hear it. The tragedy is that you could come into, the con- into contact with the gospel and come away thinking that all it is is a call to being a good person. Here's what I want you to hear. If you, if you tune out immediately after this, once the, this gets going, and, and, and the rest becomes a blur, I just want you to hear this. According to the Bible, salvation is not something that we take for ourselves. It's not something that we earn. Salvation is a gift, something that is given to us. But like every gift, salvation has to be paid for. There is a cost associated with the gift. In the simplest terms, it's Jesus who paid for the gift. Jesus who earned the gift so that he could give it freely to us. Not because we're good, not because we're deserving. In fact, it's just the opposite. He gives us this gift because he loves us. He gives it freely to those who believe in him out of love. That gift of salvation is what delivers us from our sin. It gives us life. It gives us peace. And if you're asking yourself, why would he do that? Why would it work that way? Because that's not the way most people think it works. Right? There's a reason why so many people come away thinking that, that the church is preaching be a good person. And it's because that does make sense. Like We do look around and we see there are some people who are basically good. There are some people who are really not. And you want to be one of the good ones, not one of the bad ones. And it just makes sense that if God was looking down at the world with our sensibility, that he would draw the line the way we would. It just makes sense. So why would he do it this other way? Why would it be that salvation would not be attainable through works only as a gift? Well, that's the question that Paul is going to answer in our text. It turns out the reason God does it this way is to show his righteousness. The reason he does it this way is to show his own glory. We come here to worship to glorify God. It's a fancy way of saying we we want to uh, talk about how great he is. We want to tell him we know how great you are. And God does this same thing himself. God proclaims his goodness, his grace, his justice, and his love in everything that he does. We're not just saved by his grace. We are saved for his glory. So let's take a look at what Paul says in Romans. And I want you to see this. So this is Romans chapter 3. We're starting in verse 21. We're going to go through verse 26. This is a, a, a complete paragraph, kind of a complete unit of thought in Paul's letter. He writes these words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. When I say salvation is a gift, in Paul's terms, there's a more specific way of putting it. Justification is a gift. Justification is a gift. Justification is one of our fancy Latinate theological terms, but it comes straight out of the Bible. It comes straight out of uh, texts like this. When, when God says, when we see at the end of our text that God is just and also the justifier, that means the one who makes us just through justification. You get it? When you think justification, you could also think righteousnessification, but that's a little clumsy. But, but just and righteous are words that, that are kind of interchangeable in this context, somewhat interchangeable. So the process by which we are made righteous before God, that's justification. And here, the righteousness that Paul is speaking of is a kind of extraordinary righteousness that God alone possesses. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In Romans 3.21, we've actually reached the beginning of part two of the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18, when we started looking at the wrath of God revealed against sin, the thing that we've been doing for weeks now, that was working through part one. There was an introduction, and then part one is devoted to Paul's doctrine of sin. He ends up uh, demonstrating that we're all together in condemnation. All of us are sinners, no matter who we are, no matter our tribe, kindred, nation, we are all equal in our condemnation. That's the end of part one. And now part two begins. And part two, having talked about one kind of righteousness, man's righteousness, now Paul begins to speak about a different kind of righteousness, the righteousness of God. What Paul did in part one was prove that the ordinary righteousness of human beings, a sort of ethical righteousness, the kind of righteousness that most religions that most philosophies advocate for, that that does not lead to salvation. The ordinary righteousness known to human ethics, the personal and exact conformity to a code of laws, uh, a system of, of principles, obedience to that, that, that doesn't work. For Jew or Gentile alike, it doesn't work. Salvation through ordinary righteousness is out of the question. And the question becomes, how then can salvation be obtained? If not through ordinary righteousness, then, then through what? And the answer is through God's extraordinary righteousness. Now, before we started looking at the doctrine of sin in Romans 1.18, in Romans 1.17, Paul introduced this idea of a righteousness of God. Right? He said, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, not by works, not by obedience, 
but the righteous shall live by faith. He says those words, the words that, that sparked the Reformation when they caught hold of Martin Luther, and then he immediately changes the subject, as it were, and starts talking about our condemnation of his sin. But now he's coming back to that topic. He's coming back to God's righteousness and elaborating on that idea, God's extraordinary righteousness. The righteousness, Paul says, it's manifested apart from the law. In other words, there's no human work, no human obedience that contributes to this salvation. And yet having said that, he makes a point of saying the law and the prophets, they all point to it. The law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. They give testimony to this gospel. The reason he's saying this, when uh, an author refers to the law and the prophets, he's referring to what we would call the Old Testament. This is kind of a shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament. So he's saying something new is being revealed. Right? We're understanding something that we didn't fully see before, and yet it is actually witnessed in the writings God gave us before. So, yes, this is a new covenant. We're in the New Testament, but there's a lot of continuity here, right? The New Testament is the start of a new religion. It is a further fulfillment, revelation of the work that God has been doing all along. Right? He is revealing himself progressively. But what he's been doing is the same. He's not inaugurating a new plan of salvation. He's explaining in more depth the way salvation works. In other words, this salvation is nothing new. This is the way God works in the Old Testament and in the New. Now, if salvation is apart from works, if works of the law have no bearing on this righteousness, salvation of works is out of the question, and all that's left is salvation by grace. It's the only alternative. Salvation can only be by grace. More works won't save us. Feeling bad about the life that you live and cleaning up your act won't save you. No matter how good you try to be, it won't save you. More works is not the answer to your longing. The only answer is more grace. More grace. If you feel the weight of your sin, if it instills in you a desire to be free of that weight, of that condemnation, what you should be striving for is not more works. It's more grace. It's more grace. A grace that's found in faith in Christ. This is what Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God's extraordinary righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the interesting thing. You may not have, have noticed this as we've worked through the text, because in each sermon, as we deal with each portion of text, I will always connect Jesus to it. But Paul hasn't talked much about Jesus through the book of Romans. At the beginning, in those introductory passages, he mentions Jesus several times. And then that kind of stops. After 118, it's all sin, 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 except there's one mention in chapter 2. If you look at Romans chapter 2, you'll find that there is a mention of Jesus, but uh, it's in Romans 2.16, 
where Paul says that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So it's all about judgment. The context is judgment, that one mention. Now, though, we've turned a corner. Now it's all about Jesus. Now Jesus is being revealed, and the context isn't judgment. The context isn't the justice that God will do on that last day. The context is freedom from judgment, a freedom from judgment that we have through God's extraordinary righteousness. Through faith in Christ, those who believe on the day of judgment can stand. On the day of judgment, those who are in Christ do not need to look away, do not need to fear. Those who are in Christ will withstand that scrutiny. You should note, though, that Paul does say, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Sometimes when we talk about the importance of having faith, we talk about faith as a sort of a generic quality, sort of like hope. You know, you just got to hope. You just got to believe. You just got to have faith. Leaving unanswered the question, faith in what exactly? Hope in what exactly? Or to be more precise, in whom? In whom? Here, Paul makes it very clear he's speaking of faith in Jesus Christ, the historical person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, as revealed in Scripture, it is faith in him, those who believe in him, who receive this gift. That's important. It's important. Grace is a gift. There is no distinction All who believe, Paul says, all who believe without distinction. Remember, he's speaking to people who are accustomed to making distinctions, racial distinctions, Jew versus Gentile, that sort of thing. And he's saying, you're all alike under sin, and now there is no difference between you in terms of condemnation. There's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You see the parallel? He's saying basically, if the problem for everyone is the same, then the solution for everyone is the same. The problem is the problem of sin. The solution is Christ. The solution is Christ. All who believe in him will be saved. Doesn't matter their background. Doesn't matter kindred or tribe. None of that matters. We are all one in Christ. And the only justification is justification by grace. This is the only way of salvation. God gives what we cannot take for ourselves. And the thing that we cannot take is his righteousness. His righteousness. It's a gift that he gives us. It is a gift that was earned. Justification is a gift, but it's a gift, like all gifts, that had to be earned. Jesus paid for it. Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God's extraordinary righteousness is gifted to us through God's plan of redemption. That plan is Trinitarian. God put him forward, put Christ forward, Paul says. The Father, 
designed this salvation from the beginning. From the beginning, before the foundation of the world, the Father designed this plan of redemption. The Son paid for it by the atoning sacrifice that he made on the cross. We talked about this on Good Friday, that word there, propitiation, uh, helasterion. In the Greek, this is a word that could also be translated atoning sacrifice. It brings to mind the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were made as a covering for sin. But of course, the sacrifice of Christ was a once-for-all sacrifice. That was a price that Christ paid so that this gift could be given. And it is the Spirit who applies this gift to us by working faith in our hearts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, active in the work of salvation from the beginning right up to this moment. All of it, all of it, a work of God. All of it designed to give us freely this great gift. We receive this righteousness. We don't work for it. All the work was done by Jesus. I'll tell you a story I think a lot of you will be able to relate to. Um, this happens to a lot of us when we're young. You want to give someone a gift. Maybe it's, it's your mom's birthday or something. You want to give her something nice, but you don't actually have a job. And so it's hard to get money. And so you're kind of forced to figure out like how you're going to make this work. Well, here's the thing. That doesn't just happen to young people. It also happens to older people as well. It happened to me a few years ago. If you ever visit our house in our dining room, on the wall, there's a lino cut called New Creation. It's, it's jam-packed with all of these, these symbols, rich in imagery. A friend of mine made the artwork, and I thought it was the best thing that, that he'd ever done so far. I really loved it, and I thought that would be the perfect gift for Lori, because her, uh, <laughs> her birthday falls at the end of uh, July, and I'm typically on the road for June and July. Now, a good husband would have already thought about what to give her for her birthday, let's say in May, and would have a plan. Like a decent husband certainly would have this nailed down by the beginning of July. A husband like me is, is sort of keeping things loose and, and waiting to see what develops, and, and nothing did. And so at the end of the summer, I saw this beautiful artwork that, that my friend had made, and I thought, this would be perfect for Lori's birthday. The only problem was I was broke. Like we had worked out our finances so that we could get through this summer, and at the end of the summer, it was sort of like, we'll see what happens, and what happened was nothing. And so I was faced with this dilemma. We're on the road. It's her birthday. I won't say which one it was, and, uh, and I wanted to give her something nice, but I didn't have a way to do that. Uh, fortunately, my friend Ned, who made the artwork, is a publisher, uh, small press, and so uh, there was a way for me to do this. I spent a week basically working for him, editing a book, doing some rewrites, that sort of thing, kind of taking that load off of his shoulders, and as a result of that work, he gave me this, this line of cuts, actually went with me to, to frame it and, and everything, and then I was able to give it as a gift to Lori, and now it's on our wall. You see it, you may be interested in it, and some people will study all of the little symbols in it, but you usually don't know the story of how that came about. It was a close-run thing. 
but because I did the work, I could give her the gift. She didn't have to pay for it. That's the nature of a gift. That's one of the nice things about a gift, is giving something of value to someone that you love, and they don't have to pay for it, but they don't expect it. Um, But somebody did have to pay. It wasn't free. And in this case, I'm the one that had to do the work. And that's the way gifts work. If you want to be able to graciously give to the one you love, you are going to have to do some work to earn it. Now, believe me, there's no comparison to the work I did in order to earn this gift and the work Christ did to earn the gift of righteousness. But the principle is the same. If you understand how gifts work, you see what's going on here. And and that helps you see why salvation by its very nature, would never be something you do. If justification is a free gift, the way Scripture describes it, it could never be something you pay for. Because that's contrary to the nature of a gift. It's not how gifts work. If Jesus had given you a salvation that you had to work to attain to, if he'd given you a salvation that was yours as long as you could behave yourself and keep it, What sort of gift, what sort of gift giver would he be? This isn't a conditional prize. This isn't a reward for good behavior. This is a free gift that he has given us, that he has paid for in ways that are unimaginable. And he gives it out of love. That gift... That gift means everything. That gift is what this is all about. It's why we're here. I want you to hear this. If you've come into this place thinking that the message is, be a good person, behave yourself, and maybe God will take pity on you and let you into heaven, that is not at all the way this works. We're not here because we're hoping that God will look down on us with favor, approve of us, and and, and let us in through the pearly gates. We're here because he gave us a free gift that we know we didn't earn, we didn't deserve. We're here out of gratitude to worship him for his goodness. That gift was life. That gift was reconciliation. He made the peace when we were still at war with him. That gift was Passover. That gift was Passover. What does the gift prove? Paul says this was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness. That's why it works this way. I know that sounds circular. God's righteousness was manifest to show God's righteousness. But he actually means two different things here. What he's getting at is something like this. The reason God gifts his extraordinary righteousness to us is to demonstrate how good he is. Salvation works the way it works to show God's righteousness, to show how good God truly is, because the purpose of it all ultimately is to glorify him. The purpose of it all is to reveal his character to all creation. So the gospel, the good news, the plan of salvation, it's showing us what it looks like when a God who is perfectly just loves the unjust. When a God who is without sin loves sinners, this is what it looks like. How does this gift prove God's righteousness? Well, part of it has to do with God's response to sin. 
Paul says, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He had passed over former sins. Adam and Eve were under the impression that if they disobeyed, they would die. This is actually the point the serpent pushes back on. Has God really said that? Is that really true? Do you really think that's going to happen? And if you read the story, the account in Genesis 3, it kind of sounds like the serpent was right. Because they eat from the fruits, they sin, they fall, they know their shame. God shows up to confront them in the garden. They hide from him. I mean, you would hide too if you knew that the penalty for what you just done was death. But God doesn't vaporize them. He doesn't walk into the garden holding a thunderbolt saying, where are those sinners? They don't die. And eventually they do. Eventually they do. Sin enters into the world. Death enters into the world because of sin. They don't die immediately. God shows mercy. Or in Paul's words, forbearance. Not for the last time either. Because ever since the first sin, we've actually been building on that legacy. Sin after sin after sin. And God has shown extraordinary forbearance. There are penalties for sin. There are punishments for sin in this life. But God shows remarkable patience with us. He passes over those sins. He doesn't exact the penalty at the moment. He doesn't make us pay the price at that moment of sin. But passing over doesn't mean there will be no justice. There will be a reckoning. Passing over means that God made a way for us to be made just in Christ. It brings us to the other Passover. Paul speaks of God passing over former sin, but Passover with a capital P, that brings us back to the days of Moses. That brings us back to the deliverance of Egypt. Right? The Passover, that was more than just the historical setting for the crucifixion. Like the story of Christ's passion plays out in the Gospels as a fulfillment of a picture painted in Passover in the Old Testament. And something's happening in Christ's passion that brings to fulfillment the promise of Passover in the days of Moses. Now, there's a remarkable fact about all of this that John notes in his gospel. We looked at this in our Good Friday service, but I want to call your attention to it again. You find this in John chapter 18. This is as John is, is narrating the, the events that led to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. There's an interesting note as Jesus is being transferred from the Jewish authorities to the Roman authorities. You read this in John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, the Praetorium. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You see the irony in that? The men who had taken Jesus captive the men who were bringing him to Pilate for judgment. When they reached the Praetorium, they stopped in the colony. They stopped at the outskirts, and they would not enter in. It's strange. They brought Jesus to Pilate so they can have him crucified, but they stopped. 
there's a higher concern that they have, something that prevents them from crossing the threshold to where this pagan idolater ruled and reigned. And it was Passover. But if they had entered into that place, into Pilate's house, they would have been ritually defiled. They would have been ritually unclean. They would not have been able to eat of the Passover. This is cutting. This is so, this is John showing that he too had the, the spiritual gift of sarcasm, right? Because he's showing you an irony here, right? That these righteous men who are so concerned with their ritual purity that they won't even cross the threshold of Pilate's house are handing over our Passover lamb for slaughter. They think that it's crossing that threshold that will defile them. We see it differently. We see something deeper going on. It illustrates for us, though, the way that Passover as a sign could be more than just a sign of community. It could be more than a sign of salvation. It could also be a sign of separation. Because at that moment, those men won't walk over the filthy threshold of these pagan Gentiles because they are set apart. Because they are set apart. They are children of God. This is why they won't go. It's interesting, though, the line that they won't cross is the line that Jesus walks across. The place where those righteous men stop short, Jesus continues to go. When he's crucified, almost as an afterthought, there's a note that the veil in the temple is torn in two. You see that and you recognize something has happened. Things have changed. There was a separation that is no longer there. This is another one of those moments as Jesus passes over that threshold into, as it were, the world of the Gentiles. For our sake, for our sake, he does this. This is why when we come to the table in our communion liturgy, we say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Because the cross of Christ was that atoning sacrifice. It's the means by which that righteousness is given to us. It was to show his righteousness, Paul says, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he might be just. So God wants to vindicate his justice here, to show that he is just. The judge of all the world will do right. He is just. And you shouldn't mistake the fact that he's been patient, long-suffering, and forbearing. You shouldn't look at that and say, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. There will be no justice. Evil will thrive. Good will be punished. That's just the way the world is. God says, no, it just looks that way because of my forbearance. But there will be a reckoning because God is just and he shows himself to be just. But not only that, that he might be just, Paul writes, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God loves us. So he shows that not only is he just, but that he's determined to make us just, to be the justifier. 
all of the, the glorious names that proclaim his goodness, the names that he's invented for himself, as it were, the names he's given himself to proclaim his, his attributes. One of those names he takes to himself is the justifier. The justifier, the one who makes righteous. It matters to him. His way of saving us is to justify us. Everyone who has faith in Jesus will be made just. Even though we were defiled by sin, we will eat this Passover. Because by faith, our place at the table has been given to us as a gift. Christ met the demands of justice so that he can make a gift of his righteousness to us. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the word of salvation. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.